You can't be the same person tomorrow that you were yesterday. And part of the problem with a uh, sector-focused fund is good for now, but it becomes a straitjacket. And you want to avoid wearing a straitjacket to work every day. So I, my advice to people, if you're trying to raise a fund, you need to be good at something and have a track record and credibility, but that something needs to be broad enough that it can extend into the next new thing. Welcome everybody. I'm Mark Peter Davis, Managing Partner of Interplay Ventures. On this podcast, I interview innovators and venture capitalists about their strategies, industries, and decisions. Today we have Ian Sigalow. Ian is the co-founder of Greycroft, one of the biggest VC firms in the world. They have 50 employees, which by VC standards is absolutely gigantic. They manage several billion dollars and have had tremendous success over the last decade. We have a great and candid conversation about the world of venture capital and what Ian thinks is happening within it. We talk about the spread of innovation around the world, managing funds across the company lifecycle, and what it takes to make a great founder. I hope you enjoy the conversation. This episode is brought to you by Spark Digital. Spark Digital is a full service provider of technology consulting, software design, and development services. They work with companies in the communications, media, and technology industries. If you're interested in learning more, visit sparkdigital.com. Welcome, Ian. Thank you for having me. Thanks for being here. So before we get into this, I'm actually going to introduce you. And historically, I've had people introduce themselves, but I think that gives too much airtime to things that are easy for you. Oh, you're right. You're right. It's going to be too easy. So first, before we get into that, how long have we known each other? So people have a little context here. Oh, God, you're, you're giving me a pop quiz. Uh, mm-hmm. So what, you were Columbia Business School 08, you got right? It. You got it. And I, I was 06. So I, I'm guessing we met in 2007. Okay, yeah. So it's like a, we're, we're 15-ish years in. I've been watching you through your career. And I think I can probably give it a pretty good summary. I'm probably going to miss a bunch of stuff, so I'll let you fill it in at the end. Uh, but for the folks who are listening... Um, Ian, he wouldn't say this, is wildly smart, and you'll, that'll become self-evident uh, as soon as he starts speaking. Uh, he did his undergrad at MIT, his MBA at Columbia. Uh, he's been a VC for longer than most. Uh, he essentially started right out of college. So unusually for someone our age, he's got 20 years of experience. Um, I think we're both rounding up on 42, and I'm only 15 years in the game. So he's, um, he, he's probably one of the veterans for our age group. Uh, Ian joined Greycross founding team as an associate in 2006 under the famous investor Alan Patrikoff. I believe Alan has since retired. And now Ian is one of the two remaining co-founders and managing partners who run the firm. They manage a billion and a half dollars. And our bracket, they, they've backed a number of household names, unicorns that everyone knows. Some recently popular ones are Bumble, Acorn Scoop, Plated, Thrive Markets, and more. Um, there are about 50 people on the team, which if you're not familiar with venture is absolutely enormous. Large venture firms are 10-ish people. Uh, and it's safe to say Greycroft in and of itself is one of the unicorns out of New York in the venture business. It's one of the companies that has kind of scaled very quickly and become a household name in our industry. So now that I have stolen all of your material, Ian, let's have a real conversation. Let's do it. Did I, did I miss anything? I, I was hoping you would work in the word synergistic, <laughs> but you but you didn't. It wasn't corporate enough for you. So let's jump in. Uh, you know, I, I want to start off with getting into a bit about Greycroft. I know you uh, were just out for a run, uh, sweating off uh, a board meeting you just had with your LP, your LPAC. For those who don't know, it's the, essentially your board of investors. If you're a VC, um, h- how is the company doing? Wow, you go right into the the heart of question. I'm not. I'm going to put you on the heat today. Yeah. Um. I, so, some historic, some historic uh, uh, information to to level set where things are. So you know we manage uh, just over two billion dollars of LP commitments across six early stage funds and three growth funds. The, um, 
the first early stage fund, we don't have an LPAC for. It was just friends and family. So we'll carve out that $75 million pool. Um, we have deployed, I don't even know, probably a, a billion and a half dollars, maybe a billion six. So call it about 500 million of dry powder, maybe more than that, actually. Maybe That's not always the way the math works, right? I just want to make sure for people that are for yeah. listening, maybe aren't as familiar with the VC game. When a VC typically says they manage a certain amount of assets, that's inclusive of all of the funds that I believe are still active. So those funds might be that's just right. maturing, but not be actively being invested. They might have that's invested correct. those five years ago. So when you throw yeah. out the $2 billion number, how big is the current fund you're deploying? So the most recent early stage fund is 315, and the most recent growth fund is 373. So oh, awesome. we've got... Yeah, those are huge just, capital pools, especially by East Coast standards. Yeah, so in total, and we're investing them at the same time, different teams on each, but it's just shy of $700 million of dry powder that we raised last year. And we're investing $300 million a year right now. Um, we also have a SPAC, which I didn't include in the number, but there's a $285 million SPAC too. We we'll talk about that later. Um, mm -hmm. so, so that's kind of the, the I guess, the, um, the background on what we've got, the context. And uh, we looked at our, like our unrealized NAV. So this is the, like we've sold and, and distributed hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, but I would guess um, of the cost basis remaining, there's probably a, a billion dollars of cost basis. And it was marked at the end of last year to something like 2.3. Um, keep in mind, a lot of this is young money. so. You know, certain things have only been in the portfolio for a year. And uh, first quarter, year to date. So we're eight weeks in to 2021. We're up $700 million on, That's incredible. on, our, on our unrealized NAV. Do, like we, do don't, we don't mark this this way. Yeah. But um, there have just been, and I think in the history of the firm, we've had somewhere between six and eight companies that we seeded or did early rounds in, you know, A rounds that have gone on to be valued at over a billion dollars. Um, essentially like one a year, virtually every year for the past you know, six or seven years. We've had six new companies print valuations over a billion dollars in the past eight weeks. So, so it's, it's kind of gone vertical. Yeah, and is, is this Graycroft or is this the market at the moment? Or both, because obviously I, you guys I are asked, great investors. I asked my LPs. I said, "Are you seeing this everywhere?" And it was kind of a muted answer, which was like, "Kind of." I, yeah. I think that there's um, there are certain funds that are enjoying uh, a very a very good 2021 because we're in the right sectors, and you know it's risk on and fintech and consumer internet and certain places in digital health and. In, we happen to have big insurance portfolio and other things that have just gone, gone wild. Um, I think the other interesting note is that not a single one of those unicorn companies this year was based in San Francisco. Not That's one. Very interesting. And in uh, and yeah, and there is, and this is the problem I think with investing historically, like pre-COVID, investing outside of San Francisco. When you're a public company, when you're a public company, the public markets don't care where you're headquartered, right? You could be Chewy based in Miami, and you're going to trade it at the same multiple headquartered in Miami that you would trade anywhere, maybe even at a premium because corporate taxes are lower. So like wherever it is, the public markets are totally rational. The private markets are totally irrational. and up until last year, there was a 100% premium for being based in San Francisco. And it might have been even more than that. And it was, um, it's, it's, it was, it is skewed. So companies like a notion that go straight from seed to $800 million pre-Series A, uh, along the way, would, in, if they were in New York, would have raised four financing rounds. 100, 200, 550, it would have taken 
three times longer and uh, and they would have been diluted by 50%. I mean, just look at the difference between Datadog and all of the early VCs and rounds that company had along the way compared to a company in the Valley that had a similar user profile and trajectory and revenue, but the valuation ramped so fast. And early stage investors in San Francisco really enjoyed the benefit of this. And I don't think they even, because when you're, it's like the frog in the pot, you don't realize that this is happening when it's happening, but it mm-hmm. absolutely benefits your IRR and your ownership because you're not diluted as much when companies rocket up in valuation because the subsequent financings uh, end up happening and like, oh, well, we raised $200 million. We sold 10% of the company in a series B. Like, well, right. that didn't, ha- that would never happen in a New York company during that period. Uh, and I, I think since COVID, capital has um, become unlocked. And, you know, the multiples that were historically conveyed to companies in San Francisco alone, um, there are many other companies and many other geographies that are now seeing um, similar multiples applied to their businesses. And, um, I'm kind of testing this theory out as I'm telling you this, but I, I think that's part of what is happening, which is helping um, East Coast VCs and Midwest VCs like Drive Capital and others, you know, that we're all seeing our portfolios perform in a way that it would have been much harder to do if people had to get on an airplane and sit down face to face and fly to Columbus, Ohio to look at, you know, whatever company in person. It's interesting you say that. We're obviously a smaller operation than you guys but we have seen the same bump in Q1 where companies have popped. We've got a couple of companies that are, are now uh, in unicorn territory that weren't there, you know, three, six months ago. But the, I don't think I had correlated as much with the breakdown of the geographical barrier. I had, I had my head around that just the market's in a little bit of a frenzy and the you know, capital is moving aggressively. The government's printing money, all the things that are, you know, stimulants, and driving the capital markets. Do you, th- do you think, I mean, I guess one of the questions for this is, do you think there's a material change in the dynamics people are seeing in Valley deals? Because if they've stayed flat and everyone else has gone up, then it is a geographical shift. I, I don't know. Mm. Uh, I, I, but I mean, I can tell you, and, and I don't have um, empirical evidence. It's not as if I've pulled down top whatever deals by geography across the US. We'll but I do, yeah, yeah. But I, I, I do know from his, I, I would have conversations with CEO. One of my favorite stories is with Bill Smith, who was the founder and CEO of Shipped. And we led the Series A and Bill said, Ian, my company's worth $100 million. And I said, I'm giving you a term sheet at 45 pre. He said, my company's worth $100 million. Like, I'm going to go to the Valley. I'm like, good. Take my term sheet, go to the Valley. Tell VCs you want a hundred million per. You can even tell them you got a term sheet. You can do what you need, but you have to tell them there are no direct flights between Birmingham, Alabama, and San Francisco, and see how, <laughs> and see. And this was this was twenty twenty sixteen, and right. see how many VCs raised their hand to fund you. You you were worth. He was worth a hundred per. Like there was yeah. no doubt in my mind that company was worth that was just two hundred. The inconvenience of getting going to the board meeting, or was it? Um, concerned that the infrastructure in Birmingham wasn't sufficient to bring talent and capital yes, and support yes, the company. All, all of it, but every company's remote now. Right. So that's the other thing, which I, how do you, and by the way, I mean, Valley's the, the uh, air quote, the Valley's a lock on talent when no one lives there anymore. Like, right. I don't know, my, my engineer used to live in San Francisco, but they just bought a home in Nevada because they're tired of paying taxes in San Francisco and having organized right. crime knock down their door and whatever. Like, okay, well, so be it. Like, people and are free to move wherever they want. I saw an interesting um, little video montage put up at the Wall Street Journal, and it was making the argument through some research studies that by not having people in geographic proximity, you actually lose a degree of innovation. They had done some studies. When I saw it, I was like, okay, there's probably some merit to the work they've done. My question now, though, is are we going to be in a world where there is density in seven cities? Right Right now, there's only been density in two or three cities up till this point. I don't know what the tipping point is for innovation to really 
harvest, manifest. But maybe we'll have enough of that in Miami. We have it in New York. Maybe Boston will pop back up the way it used to be, right? Chicago will hit, right? So that's what I'm, I'm looking at this and wondering, are we going to see a slowdown in innovation, which is what they're suggesting, or are we just going to see innov- more innovation in more places? Uh, I don't know that either of those answers is right. What do you think might I, be happening? Um, uh, well, I think that we're seeing an acceleration in innovation uh, for a lot of reasons, one of which is just the macro environment of people out of work and they've got more time. And then there's also just like I'm working for a company I don't love and I didn't realize how much I didn't love it until I spent all of this time at home mm. and I'm now not connected to my coworkers and I'm not getting my massages and free lunch every day at Google. So maybe I'll work on a side project because no one's looking over my shoulder anymore. Um, and that that's happening everywhere. So I think innovation is accelerating. Uh, second point, um, there are only a handful of cities in America and in the world that produce all of the software that the world runs on. It's really kind of an unbelievable thing when you step back and say, well, you know, where is all the companies in Europe and the United States and Latin America and where they run on Microsoft or Google, they have Apple phones or Android phones. Like uh, you just look across this, where their host, their software is hosted on one of three clouds. Maybe they're using Akamai for their CDN, but you know, it's like how many cities in the world produce massively scalable software companies, which is why all the wealth in the whole world is concentrating in the United States in a couple places. And I'm not so sure that that is going to change. Because I, I think that people are, um, are moving for various reasons during COVID. Um, I think that the cities uh, that were very popular in 2019 will be popular again. It may take a couple of years, but my friends that are moving are also thinking about it as like, a, well, it will do it for a year or two, but you know, we're going to come back. I think a lot of people are also just lonely. So, yeah. you know, you move and you're like, well, you know, I've been living in New Hampshire on a whatever. And like, this is okay for now. I need space, but I can't wait to get back and see people again. And the lo- loneliness drives a lot of behavior. So let me, re- let me take this a different direction for a second. You're, you're managing a ton of capital at this point. The firm's large. Uh, well, how big was your first fund back in 06? It was $75 million. $75 million, which is a pretty good size fund for a first fund, but nothing mm-hmm. of the caliber where you're playing now. Why do you think Gracecroft was so successful? If you could look back and pull some wisdom for what changed. There's a lot of VCs in the market, a lot of people trying to learn. First of all, I don't, I don't know that we were so successful. And we were like a 3X fund. Uh, I think that's generally top decile by VC metrics. Yeah, I, I wasn't happy with that. Um, mm-hmm. like, there's so much there's so much more opportunity than things that we missed. Um, so one is, um, you know, we wanted to fund really only internet companies in 06. And we didn't get caught up in the first wave of nano and clean tech and... Mm. We, that was very we weren't, popular. We weren't, we weren't distracted by some of those things, which, you know, it's sector rotation is everything in venture capital. You're in the wrong markets. Forget about it. You know, you lose all your money. Um, so we were in the right markets, both, you know, from a, um, a But the a internet's kind of been the right market, market no? When you, it, it wasn't the right tech. market. From 01 to 06, it wasn't the right That's market. That's true. That's your, true. That was the, the trough. Off. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it was the right market then, uh, what else? I mean, we, we launched the iPhone launched 12 months later Mm -hmm. and we didn't really start funding companies based upon a mobile thesis until fund two, which was 2010. Although it was pretty evident by 2000. I don't know. Let's say the iPhone launched in Q1 of 07. By Q2 of 07, it was pretty evident that this was a thing. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and some tailwinds from the iPhone certainly helped our broader portfolio grow faster. But you're telling a story that it was right place, right time. There's yeah. nothing more to it? Well, let me say I'm a super genius and I figured no. it all out. You know, or like you guys had some strategy or, you know, uh, we, we approach did, to we the did business have, that was different? You know, first off, anybody with a checkbook can be a venture capitalist. They, okay. Whatever people say to me, right. oh, so you know, I want to- why did you succeed? Yeah, well, well say me, I want to break into venture capital. Well, show me your portfolio. Like, you're going angel list and go fund some stuff and see how it works. Um, so, uh, yeah. we had a theory around how to construct a portfolio. And we had a theory about um, you know, how to be a good co-investor. And uh, those two things were, were unique at the time. I think our portfolio construction was probably wrong, but it was, it was unique. And our how to be a good co-investor was right. Can you um, elaborate on what those theories were? Yeah. So um, on the how to be a good co-investor, everybody in the venture capital business in 06 wanted exactly the same thing. And they want it now too, which is they show up, I love your company. I'm a really active investor. I want to be on your board. I'll be on your comp committee and your audit committee. And I really want to own at a minimum 20%, but you know, 25% is really our ownership target. And I need to own it now. Like right now. In other words, I'm not, I'm not investing unless I get to 20% today. So 20% became a very expensive percentage to get because everybody wanted the exact same thing. And it became a death match between every VC. And it's awful for companies because the company's like, well, I'm going to be raising money forever because I'm build this company for the rest of my life. There's going to be like a series Q before I'm done. Why do I have to sell 20% to this person I just met on the street corner today? Like that doesn't feel like a long-term partner. And they're insisting on like it's they tell me they're active, but what I'm hearing as an entrepreneur is. This person needs to be in all of my committees and up in my business in order to do this deal. And I really like being an entrepreneur and not having a boss. And when I read the term sheet, it says, you know, customary rights and privileges of preferred. What's, what's that mean? And I start looking through like, I can't do anything without approval from this guy. And it's always a guy. That was the other part. It was like total, all white, I'm a white man, but it was all white men. Mm-hmm. So we said, well, we're going to flip the script on that. Um, first off, we have a co-founder is Dana Settle. We, we're, I think we're one of two female co-founded venture capital firms that manage anywhere close to the amount of money we manage. Like there's, it's not that. a, in venture capital land. Um, so that, that's one. And then the second thing was like this, this whole arbitrariness around, I need to own X and get to X and do this and like that doesn't sound to me like putting the entrepreneur first. That sounds like letting my fund size dictate my strategy. Mm-hmm. So we're not going to do that. And you know, as a result, we got into things. So we'd show up and the entrepreneur say, "Have you read the term sheet you got from pick your whatever fund?" And they'd say, "Yeah, I did." Like, have you ever thought about having a boss? who tells you if you can hire people and approve a budget and sell your company and raise more money. And like, oh, I never thought about that. Hmm. And our pitch is great for repeat entrepreneurs. They've showed it because they, they've been through the sausage maker before and come out the other side. I tried to sell my company and I got blocked by Sequoia yep. and then it went to zero and I hate those guys. I mean, you'd hear those stories. Like, well, we won't let that happen to you. Um. And, uh, and so they're the ones who really helped us build our, not only our reputation, but our returns because repeat entrepreneurs in the venture business are gold. You find yeah. them, you know, repeat entrepreneur who's built a company before, who's got a team and a successful outcome. And they're not, they're not worried about making payroll because they can fund it themselves. Like I, I love that profile. Like, you mm-hmm. know, we'll, we'll, we'll invest alongside you. You don't need me. You want me. Like, yeah, I want somebody who can open doors and make intros and think about strategy and help with your network. I'm a partner. Like, that's the best relationship in venture. Okay. How do you um, think about 
the advantages of having a large AUM, uh, asset center mm-hmm. management for folks listening. Uh, it's one of the things people talk about a lot on the LP side. We're, you know, always talking LPs for our fund. And one of the things people are concerned about is that venture doesn't scale that well, meaning more money under management, typically lower returns. What's your view on that as a, as a fund on the larger side of the equation, at least on the East coast? Uh, it's a really good question. Let, let, I'm going to answer it from the other side of the tunnel and then work back to scaling because ultimately we can deploy big, big dollars and generate big returns. Um, the, the first challenge as a manager in 2021 is the venture business is global and it's becoming a platform business. And by that, I mean, um, we are seeing the same transition in venture that happened in the private equity industry in the 90s and the hedge fund industry in you know, 15 years ago, whatever, the two, early 2000s. And it's happening in venture now. And a platform business means that um, I need, as a venture manager, to provide very significant services to my companies to distinguish uh, myself from the, the next venture guy, A, maybe even synergistic services. There you go. Uh, the word worked there in. There you go. I, I worked it in. <laughs> um, buzzword bingo. That was, that was A4. Um, and second, second is I need, to, I need to spend money on data. So you know, we're spending millions on data and technology and product because we have to have like the, the entire internet world, companies blow up all over the place all the time. And you basically need to build a Geiger counter that a Richter scale that listens everywhere and interprets signal. And we need to figure, we need to take those inputs and figure out through pattern recognition about where to invest to find the $50 billion companies. Mm-hmm. And that's really hard to do. And then the third is like the best investment professionals are expensive. Um, I, I was the the lowest paid person out of Columbia Business School. Like I was I was ashamed to I put my sa- to put my salary in those forms for a couple of years. Like yep. oh my, like I'm gonna Columbia is not gonna be able to recruit people because my numbers gonna lower the the, right. the mean or median, and uh, you know that was my my job. But now I'm competing and like the kids who have, I say kids, that's probably not nice, but you know, the men and women who have two years of experience at, you name it, uh, tier one consulting or banking firm that we're, we're rushing to come into Graycroft, it's us or they're going to go work for Apollo. I'm like, okay, so I have no idea what Apollo pays, but it's a lot of money and I've got to compete for talent. And you know, the the talent game is fierce. So the only way to play the data game and the data science game and the talent game at the scale we want to play is to is to invest. Like we have to have money from LPs like fees to invest. Otherwise I'd be spending the $30 million a year it costs to run my infrastructure out of my own pocket. So that that's the one side. Like it's a necessity. The second thing is uh, our companies, I'll tell you a story. I'm checking the time. I've got time for stories. Um, this is a great interview. I, you asked me like three questions and I just like rattle stuff off. You can so try to have you on for longer. Uh, yeah. I think you should have um, your board meeting. <laughs> sure. Uh, so <laughs> I, I, w- I went to, um, I, I was, I was a, uh, like a spy at number nine Downing Street. I probably shouldn't use the word spy, which is like the prime minister residence in, in England. And I got invited in as the token US venture capitalist mm. in a roundtable discussion of, uh, there, there's wonderful VCs in the UK, by the way. And there's, we have a lot of LPs in the UK. And some of our LPs, including Cambridge Associates, et cetera, were all like in the room. Uh, and there were U- UK VCs in the room. And there was an open table discussion around how hard it was for UK VCs to raise money from UK LPs and why the market worked the way it did. And 
I will paraphrase, but the LP response, and they would like look at me. The LP response was, if we, why would we invest in you if we could invest in tier one US VC firm that will give us US exposure, but also cherry pick the very best companies in the UK and Europe and Southeast Asia at the Series B. Because we may miss the first 50 or $100 million of value appreciation in the next Spotify. But we're going to capture 100 to 30 billion because our funds that we're investing in are, you know, they're going to be cradle to grave funds in, in the US and they're going to capture that. And I don't need this little bit of idiosyncratic UK exposure to capture that first 100 million. And I came back from that meeting and I said to my partner, Dana, who was in Los Angeles, like, we can't let that happen to us. We can't let the Valley firms go to the LPs and say, um, you don't need to invest in New York venture. Mm. We're going we're gonna to come in we're gonna cherry and pick. take, we're going to cherry pick all the best Bs and Cs. Can't let that happen. Th- this was like life or death. And so so said, you shifted we're, we're, to build the growth platform at that point? Oh yeah, that was 2014. Like I, I, I came back, called Dana. We were already working on it. I said, this is, this is imperative. Because we, we, can, we, can't, we can't let other people have our victory lap. Like you can't be in the seed round and the series A round and then miss a 30X B and a 20X C and a 10X D. Like you can't do that. Mm-hmm. Now, there's a lot of people, though, who are just in the early stage and they're putting up good numbers. And yes, there are the global platform funds that will do the growth play. It might be you guys in some cases stepping in and carrying the next round forward and playing in the upside. Those firms can be well-managed, deliver great yield to their LPs, but it, that model doesn't scale. I and mean, this is, the, I, I guess, the crux of it. It's if you want to run a lot of money, you have to get to that next stage, that bigger round where you're writing bigger mm. checks. So well, the, no, you, the thing you implicit have, you have to in be... what you're saying is that you wanted to run a lot of money. Where there's well, yeah, a lot of, of people who want to focus on just a, delivering a great multiple in a stage. Yeah. Um, there are room, there's room in the market for people who want to be a specialist in something. And there mm. always will be. Um, and I, I'd like to think that we, we broke our business into two. So we, we kept an early stage fund. That fund is small. Um, it will likely stay small. We have a growth fund, that fund is bigger, and it's going to get bigger. And the reason we did that was you can be precious about a one or $2 million check in a small fund. It's really hard to be precious about a one or $2 million check in a billion dollar fund. In fact, like no one cares. Right. And you see this, like the supermarket venture capital model of I do everything out of one pooled vehicle and it's all collateralized and like to, to pick on an obvious example, like the NEA model, um, you know, like someone we're in bright health with NEA and I love them and they put in hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars into that business and it will return billions. And that's the deal that they're rewarded financially for doing. Right. And all of their the seed P- deals don't matter. Yeah, no matter. And you know, the part the partners who are good at seed, they leave for whatever. Cause like I don't I'm not doing the five hundred billion dollar buyout deal that is going to move this fund. And I I don't want that to happen. So we set up a structure where people can earn carry and work on what they want to work on. And the the flip side of this is we do want to seed companies that eventually can return $100 million, right? right. So that ha- we, the business taken, still has to be attractive and functional for folks. Yeah, and, we, and, for, yeah and for us, it's like, well, what are the areas we should be playing in where the, you know, the fish are big enough and the waters mm-hmm. are deep enough? And 
there aren't very many global markets that have that characteristic. So we've been over the past five years, a lot more um, focused on that. So that, that brings me to an interesting question for you. I mean, when I, we talk to LPs and we hear people in the market, there's a lot of focus around the sector of a venture fund. But if I was to look at Graycroft on the outside, I'm sure you have your spiel of sectors you, you tout to LPs because they like to hear that, right? Mm-hmm. But they're, at the end of the day, you look pretty generalist for internet. And you know, when I hear the demand from LPs to have a sector focus, I'm confused by it. It's obviously a trend. It's a way for people to differentiate themselves. What is your view on sector-focused funds? Is that important? Is it good well, or bad? Well, I'd say, I'd say we at Graycroft are a sector-focused fund, but we're okay. not the same sector every time. And this is, really, this is really important. So, so you change, today, change by fund. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. I mean, we, we have five-year roadmaps cycle in and out. Sometimes we kill them early because they're played out. Um, at the moment, everything we do fits into, these aren't neat buckets, like some things have overlap, right? But we have a fintech portfolio. It's both consumer and enterprise. We have an, uh, a consumer internet portfolio. We have an enterprise software portfolio, and we have a digital health portfolio. Okay. And that, a company that's walks essentially through the door. everything. And a company walks through the door that doesn't fit in any of those, you guys don't do it? That um, is the next unicorn? The next 50, you know, mega unicorn? Uh, well, the short answer to that is uh, there's also a separate sidecar, like experimental thing that is a small percentage of capital. And there, m- almost everything, if you really wanted to, we could fit into one of those buckets. Right. So you've defined your sectors, just to call it for a second, broadly enough where you can shoehorn the entire internet into those sectors. So you can tell folks there's a sector focus, but you do the internet. But like, for instance, we did some consumer products investing years ago. We've cycled out of um, almost all consumer, unless it's a connected device. Like there's an internet story, but Mm -hmm. Yeah, like hair care, skin care, um, CPG products. Mm -hmm. That that we've cycled away from. That's a Um, macro trend in the market. Most people have cycled away from those. Yeah, we we invested in media. We've cycled away from media. Mm. Uh, We invested in within enterprise software. There's things that you know we don't do. Is we did a lot of Martech, ton of it, but nine more. So, um. You can't be the same person tomorrow that you were yesterday. And part of the problem with a uh, sector-focused fund is good for now, but it becomes a straitjacket. Mm-hmm. And you want to avoid wearing a straitjacket to work every day. So I, my advice to people, if you're trying to raise a fund, you need to be good at something and have a track record and credibility, but that something needs to be broad enough that it can extend into the next new thing and the next, like Roger Ehrenberg's a great example. He, he raised his first fund on big data. Like, you know, big data is coming. Big data is not a sector. Big data is like mobile. Mm-hmm. It's an attribute. Right. And the ability to tell a story that said, well, here, you've know, got this underlying change in the way data is created, structure, managed, index, search, whatever. And then I can apply it to TransferWise. Right. I don't know how it, that jump was made, but it was made. It sounds great, but it, ca- it catches the whole internet. You know, sure. What's, to a certain extent, and, what's, what's not dealing with massive amounts of data uh-huh. in the world we're in. Yeah. You know, and like there's, there's all sorts of secular trends and things changing that people are focused on right now. Let me pull you in a different direction here for a second. You know, uh, you've been doing this for a long time. Uh, you, you've started two questions with you be doing this for a long time. I know, but I, like, I, 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 I want to like pull gra- the wisdom out of you. I want to pull the like wisdom. I'm, I'm grandfather time over here at age 41. Well, age 41 in, in uh, startup land is pretty old yeah. school. I got referenced as OG New York in an email a week ago, and I'm like, wow, I guess I guess 40s uh, is that. I'm going to start sending that to you, OG. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> uh, what makes someone a good founder? Oh. I want to ask it really broad because I think there are so many people out there trying to jump into this, whether they're micro VCs or they're angels. And there's some pattern matching that people who have done this for a long time see. 
Is there a framework or a way to articulate what it is you're looking for in a person? The company dynamics are easier for people to get their hand around. It's math, it's market analysis, it's their gut. There's a lot of things that people are using that may or may not work for them. But the founder bit, it's kind of hard to grab until you've done it for years and years and years. So a, um, the, there is no good answer to that question because a good founder for one business would be a bad founder for a different business. Uh, so I, I would punt. But if you said to me, you know, what do I look for in a founder? Sure. And just make, make it a different answer. You know, I, the, the, I'm, I think pattern recognition in ventures just, it, it's understated in its importance because it is everything in early stage venture. And um, the patterns start to line up once you've seen enough companies. And, you know, one of the founder patterns, I, I mentioned before, I do a lot of repeat entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. Um, in addition to that, you know, you've, what the best pattern is, and you can record this and put it on YouTube, and it is the secret to making money in venture capital. So now, now the secret is out. But the best pattern is a repeat entrepreneur who has successfully built, scaled, and exited a company for enough money that they're still hungry, but not too much money that they don't care anymore. And has then left, recruited their former team. So one of the questions is, so you started something before, who worked with you before? And gone back into the same or directly adjacent market to the one they were in previously. And the person has to be the CEO or co-founder, you know, leader in the business, not like the head of marketing or whatever. I don't want to disparage marketing people, but you get it. And, um, and then they have to recruit people who've worked with them before. When I see, and they have to be in the same industry. When I see that pattern, we just auto fund. Because like we've the never, story. we've never lost money. And, well, yeah, and um, we've made a fortune on that pattern. And we only used to see it like, I don't know, once a year. Now we see it every month. And maybe more frequently. And when you do, it's just a question of how much you're willing to pay and whether they, they like us and... You know, right. everybody knows this in the venture industry. Um, and, uh, and the second thing I'd say is the worst pattern in the venture capital business is a, almost exactly like the first pattern, but with two exceptions. One is they didn't bring anybody with them. And you start to dig. And you're like, well, this guy was an asshole and no one liked him. And the company was successful in spite of him. And... He was pushed out of the boardroom and like, okay, well, got it. So he was just not great. And the second part of this is like, I was really, really good in enterprise software. And now I'm going to build a consumer company. And that doesn't work because the, the talents required to build an enterprise business are very different from the talents required to build a consumer business, which is why I couldn't give you a generic answer. That's great. Thank you. Let me ask the same question, but for VC. Look, you have a a large VC team. Most people have probably not hired and managed as many VCs as you are at this point, even at the big firms. What makes someone a good VC? So I I think the the attributes of some, and I don't know that I'm good. Like I, 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 some days I wake up and I, think that Jesus, we just totally effed up and we missed like 20 great things. And, you know, you lay awake at night thinking about the 10 deals that I, I, we, we gave trade desk to another firm at 3 million. And every time I see, uh, we the passed CEO, on public Jack, and gave it to you. No, whatever. But that no, was, but that's another, it's, that's it's, another it's, story for another day. But Je- whenever you, I see Jeff green, he's like, feel terrible. Remember when yeah. you didn't invest and like, oh yeah, or ACV auctions, like just the number of companies that come through and you're like, well, whiffed on those. So uh, we don't have the anti-portfolio on our website. We should put one up like Bessemer, although it's like nah, a little bit played out at this point. So I guess the things that I would think about, um, one is you just have to be 
intellectually curious. It mm. is not enough to like, like startups. Mm-hmm. You've got to really be a student of why stuff works the way it works. And um, n- most people aren't built that way. Like most people don't wake up in the morning and you know, drink a cup of coffee and be like, oh, this doesn't taste quite right. Why? And you start like Googling things and you start to figure out, oh, well, gee, you know, this thing was ground like in a factory seven months ago. And then they aired it out for like, you know, you have to you have to want to know why things work the way they work and why the world works the way it works. And most people just aren't curious. How do you I don't interview know why, for that? but they're not curious. Because I, I know this is a, a characteristic about you. Every time we've talked, you've read some other randomly obscure part about <laughs> yeah. trading markets and, you know, things that uh, normal humans don't know about, care about, or have no interest in. But you're, you're knee deep in it. How do, you, how do you hunt or find that in your process? Mm, you, you ask people questions about like what they find interesting and you just keep asking why you don't it's not annoying you know i was like why 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 but he's like oh why do you think that and then they give you an answer like oh that's interesting if you thought about this and he's like oh why not and you just keep going and eventually you get to like some fundamental thing about like well i was just really curious uh so that's one question uh the second question i always because the people we interview have ridiculously good resumes like i don't know like never failed at anything in their whole life and it's all on a piece of paper and it's all perfect and i always ask the question what are you most proud of that's not on your resume Mm. and uh i i there there are some really good answers to that question which i won't share with you but um because then every interview i ever do from now on people are like oh of course (laughs) but um you know you can think about that and uh, the, the answers you get on that question can be really telling about how people work and how they think about the world. Right. And so there's that part. I, I think it, it goes with the territory. Like you have to be, we, we, before we hire people, we make them do a case study and then we make them defend their case study. That's fantastic. So they, we say, here's a company, write a two page memo, not more than two pages. I don't want 40 page expose. I want two pages about, you know, why we should invest or not with a recommendation. You can, you can put some charts and graphs in like an ad. And then they come in and then they get like the gauntlet from the partners. So you said this, why do you think that's true? And they have to be able, it's hard to do this, by the way, when you're 24, super 25. Super intimidating. I'm, I'm nervous hearing about it. Yeah, you, you sit across from me and you're like, oh God, it's this <laughs> guy just quizzing me about some company I read a thing on. And I always try to figure out um, like who, who goes like the extra step. Uh, and the extra step would be, you know, I didn't know a lot about this company, but I made three phone calls mm. to people to see if I could figure something out. And here's what I learned. And, um, or... An insight that we, I, I remember this so clear, I should have hired this person. We, we gave this, a nice guy, a, uh, uh, a case study, and he gave us back this whole logistics analysis about why the company wouldn't work. And it had to do with the weight. This company was like a, um, a micro cafe that was robotic. And it had to do with the weight of the water. And he like calculated brilliant. like, like how many people do you think in New York could carry 96 pounds of water up four flights of stairs? Like, oh. And he's like, yeah, you know, this is, I called this guy from Anheuser Bush. He said, yeah, how, how easy do you think it is to hire a mixed gender workforce to carry kegs? Mm. Like, oh. And you're like, okay, well, now I understand. You're almost out of time here. I know you got to run. Mm. You, uh, you're a very uh, busy guy. Feels like every time I'm trying to catch you, you know. We're I hate the word out. busy. I hate the word busy. But you are. I've, you I feel like going on. People make their own busyness. Right, but you're working hard still, and you're building. Yeah, and yeah. you're ambitious. What's success for you at this point? Most people look at where you are and say he made it. 
right? He built a great firm, he's accomplished it, what he wanted to do in his life. Where, where are you going? What's success mm-hmm. for you? You know, so I have a coach, which mm-hmm. may surprise you, and uh, hire this coach because I, I was suffering from this problem. Like, what do you do next when you've kind of like, like growing up as a kid in Ohio where I grew up? I uh, I'm not really sure that I had goals outside of like the next thing I was looking down the road at, let alone where I am now and where to go next. Um, and uh, it's a very hard question to answer because it's a personal question. I mean, I, I know work-wise where I want to take Graycroft with my partner, Dana, and we're, we're in lockstep on it. Um, that there's also personal gratification and contentment that comes from other things outside of work too that, uh, that I get to spend more time on. And, um, yeah, I, I, I think there are the two big things that I spend time thinking about. One is I, I want to create more than we like venture capitalists also destroy industries, right? And we come in and we fund a company and that, re- that company that's growing a hundred percent a year and is ripping as my colleagues would say, the economy is only growing 2%. So mm-hmm. it's taken something from somewhere that spend is coming. And I feel like I think in the back of my mind, like I want to create more than we destroy over the course of this career. And how do I, as like a North Star, do that? How do I build a new industry instead of something that just sucks in like the like a black hole money from another industry? It's hard to do. And I think the second thing is, you know, business-wise, we we were 75 million of assets in 2010. And we're 2 billion and some change 11 years later. Uh, I wanna grow faster in the future. Like I, I, I wanna get to what's, an interesting your point. I don't have one. It's not like 50 billion or 10 billion. Is there some number in your head that you're chasing? No. Oh, I think you're not sharing. No, no. Okay. And if, if, if I told you, and the number was like 10 trillion, you'd be like, Ian, that's not possible. <laughs> <laughs> but I'd respect it. But yeah, I'd yeah. It. Like, you know, SoftBank Vision Fund? A trillion dollars. No, yeah. I'm kidding. I don't have that vision. Hey, right this was now, fantastic. You, um, you delivered. Thank you. Good insights. Thank you. I'm sure everyone listening appreciated it. Thank you so much for your time. Special thanks to Ian for sharing his unfiltered thoughts today. I thought it was super insightful uh, and I hopefully it was helpful for everyone in learning about venture capital. If you like what you heard, please hook us up with a like or a five-star review and feel free to share with a friend. You can find me on Twitter at MPD. And to hear more of my conversations with innovators, subscribe on YouTube, Facebook, or any major podcast platform. Just search for innovation with Mark Peter Davis.